Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode from South Asian Studies channel here at New Books Network. And I'm very excited to have for us today Professor Mubashir Rizvi. He is an assistant professor of anthropology at Georgetown University. And we are talking today about his first book, The Ethics of Staying, Social Movements and Land Rights Politics in Pakistan. So it just came out from Stanford University Press. And thank you so much for being here, Mubashir. Well, thank you so much, Mazuri, for um, engaging with my book and uh, for this opportunity. So excited to talk more about the book. Um, but before we get started about social movements and land rights, I just thought I would ask you about your journey to the discipline of anthropology. How did you become an anthropologist? Um, well, through chance and accidents, actually, because I had never taken an anthropology class in my undergraduate degree at all. And, you know, just backing up a little bit, you know, I, my, I'm first generation immigrant to the States. Um, so my family... Um, I immigrated to America as an 11-year-old. So um, there were lots of expectations about, you know, the kind of professional track and how one should pursue university and education. So it was like a very long kind of way in which I decided that I was actually most interested in kind of ideas about power and um, studying politics, generally speaking, partly having to do with having lived through Karachi in the 1980s and a big reason why we came to the States was the kind of riots and um, the kind of conflicts that really took over our lives, basically, and we had the opportunity to leave. Um, so I was very interested in those set of questions, and um, and at, at, I went to CUNY um, undergraduate, uh, Brooklyn College, uh, where I got involved with several different activist um, student groups um, who were working against um, cutbacks to higher education in the early 90s. And it was in those circles that I came to know other grad students from CUNY Grad Center. And, you know, I learned about anthropology, a kind of mode of research where you actually live and work with the communities that you're studying. And that to me was mind blowing. Um, and so that was how I came to thinking about it as something that I could pursue, particularly. And um, at that very early stages, I was um, uncertain. Of, I was thinking a lot of working on uh, communities uh, right after, like, around 9-11 about displacement of Pakistani-American communities in New York, whether it was in Brooklyn or other places. But I was also, like, following very closely the news about Pakistan and what was happening. Um, so I... Um, and it was around this time when I started looking at these kinds of news stories that were not very clear, but there were stories of protests that were coming out of rural Punjab. And I became very interested in that because it was something that was um, very unexpected for me uh, to hear about a kind of a peasant land rights movement coming out of a area that is very associated with prosperity or conservatism, in my imagination, being from Karachi. So, um, so there was a several set of things that I, um, um, I that were kind of uh, interested me in terms of uh, which approach I wanted to go uh, in terms of um, going on towards studying um, uh, this movement particularly. I I came to learn about anthropology um, through graduate students who were doing. Um, kind of fieldwork research among taxi workers and domestic workers in New York. Many of them were from UT Austin. 
And um, it, it's actually my colleagues, Junaid Rana and uh, Linta Verghese. Um, and it, it was through their kind of, it was a kind of indirect way where I came to learn about what is, you know, the field, generally speaking. And, um, and I became quite interested in um, working on uh, something in Pakistan, especially the kind of stories that were not being discussed at that time. It was right after 9-11. There was a lot of talks about Islam and Islamophobia and terrorism. And one of the things that, for me, that was um, laid um, missing was a question of economic and um, displacement um, that was happening throughout. So there were certain, several things that were um, um, circulating and that kind of came together when I started looking at these news stories about Anjuman and Mazarin in Punjab, the social movement that was um, coming up in newspapers um, a little bit here and there. I was getting them mostly through news groups and listservs in the early 2000s about a series of protests that were taking place in rural Punjab. And what really captured my attention was the fact that uh, the Pakistani state, uh, which was controlled by the military at that time, General Musharraf, was somehow unable to completely um, use the kind of force to kind of eliminate this movement at that particular moment. Here was a state that had dismissed an elected parliamentary government only eight or nine months before, yet at the same time, they were unable to kind of legitimize a certain kind of use of force against a peasant population uh, because they couldn't quite place them in a terrorist slot or an ethno-nationalist slot. So that was one of the kind of key things that started making me think about how to do a kind of political anthropology of Pakistan that is not... um, um, that is not that kind of looks at the kind of questions of political subjectivity and also looks at the state from a kind of ethnographic lens. Right. So two questions following up on that. Do you remember your first anthropology class? Did you ever take one in Brooklyn College? And following up on that, what was the experience like going back to Pakistan as someone who had only left, you know, fairly recently, what, 10, 15 years ago at that point, right? So did you present yourself as a kind of prodigal son returning home? How did you present yourself to your colleagues back in the United States? Were you a native anthropologist who was returning to his homeland? I'm just curious about, you know, how your Pakistani identity and then returning to Pakistan as an anthropologist uh, played off of each other. Yeah. um, So interestingly enough, um, for me, um, I had never taken a course um, in anthropology, but what really did make me really interested in, in the field partly was because I was really interested in political theory. Um, and the idea that, you know, we didn't have to, like, just think through Hegel or John Stuart Mill or Locke, but actually, um, you know, as an anthropologist, like, really take seriously how people imagine the world and how they identify with the world around them. And um, so for me, um, it was all somewhat, sounds a bit naive, but it was very abst- uh, it was very exciting. Um, and so I actually started reading on anthropology on my own um, and through circle of friends that I had made. Um, and, I, and I decided to, that's something that I w- wanted to pursue for graduate school. And, and I, had select, I kind of chose to go to UT Austin partly because a lot of the people that I was encountering who were interested in some kind of activist-oriented research were coming out of there at that particular moment. Um, So it was a kind of a big transition for me to move to Austin from New York, but I was kind of excited by that opportunity to work with a kind of cohort and also um, kind of faculty that were really interested in these set of questions. 
And going into a graduate program, I was not quite sure exactly if I was going to be working. I didn't know about the Anjuman and Mazari in the Punjab. I was actually looking into um, uh, doing a kind of ethnography of um, um, urban mohallas or neighborhoods that were had changed in terms of the, after the ethnic riots uh, and sectarian kind of rise of sectarian politics. It was one of those two kind of elements that were really in my mind about a kind of more of an urban political anthropology. Um, one thing that gave me pause um, as I started like looking up and kind of learning about the Anjuman Mazari in Punjab, particularly, um, what uh, was um, partly um, this idea that um, it, uh, that there was a whole big story that was not being told, which was about the rural in Pakistan, and um, you know the fact that. Pakistan uh, at that time, and still has perhaps the highest rates from rural to urban um, internal immigration migration, and uh, the certain kind of factors that are kind of at play behind that are um, not kind of researched enough, or, or just the kind of broadly the idea of the rural question was it's very in- interesting to me, and it also allowed me to. Um, learn about something that was very unfamiliar. So I wouldn't identify myself as a native anthropologist per se, because my own family didn't really have any links to Punjab. We had migrated from India to Pakistan, Karachi. So uh, for me, it was also a way of unlearning what I thought I knew about Pakistan and kind of trying to kind of go back and understand um, that kind of politics of land and land holding. Mm. Right. And, you know, so coming to the Anjuman Mazar in Punjab itself, will you describe for our readers exactly what it was as a rural mass movement? What were they representing? What were they fighting against? What was the milieu when you first encountered it? as a graduate student. Right. So um, so Anjuman Mazarin Punjab really emerges, um, I, I don't want to use the word spontaneously, but that it's, that's how it kind of felt like, because um, it, at that particular moment in the year 2000, when the Pakistani state, soon after General Musharraf overthrew the elected parliamentary government, had decided to do a certain kind of audit culture um, throughout um, um, the Pakistani state bureaucracy. And one of the findings was that the government-owned military farms, um, which is a kind of a colonial vestige, um, had been um, um, one of the recommendations of this audit was to monetize what was a kind of sharecropping arrangement in um, in these um, kind of a government managed um, series of kind of network of farms, which were originally founded for um, um, horse kind of stud farms um, for, uh, for oat and hay, it was very much part of this kind of British World War One, World War Two mode of of um, uh, giving somewhat patronage to. Uh, military recruits, as well as kind of raising um, um, dairy and other kinds of uh, um, fodder for for the military in that particular way, that those farms had continued from the turn of twentieth century till now under a sharecropping arrangement, and the military was very interested in kind of monetizing and privatizing that land um, in order to kind of make it much more of an efficient operation. So what they had proposed to do was to transform that kind of legal status of tenant sharecroppers into rent-paying tenants um, who would be offered a lease. Um, And so they will become uh, not mazarin in the kind of classical sense of sharecroppers, but they will become tenants of um, 
or a cash-based tenancy system. Um, Originally, many of the tenant farmers are actually um, somewhat happy with the arrangement because things um, were deeply, these farm, these, most of these mothering were very impoverished in a very prosperous region. But the ca- there was a catch-22 that they realized very early on that as sharecroppers, they had permanent land use rights. And as uh, contract um, uh, lease farmers, they could be potentially evicted as soon as the lease runs out. And they wanted some kind of guarantees for a more longer-term lease from the state. And that's when the state um, started to suppress the mobilization of tenants who were trying to demand for more secure guarantees for the land. Um, it was through these kinds of engagements and arrangements that uh, the tenants decided to come together to demand either permanent land use rights or land rights. And it was during this process of kind of organizing that um, a certain kind of uh, um, um, uh, that they also realized that the, the military itself did not own the land, actually. The land was owned by the Punjab state government, and the, therefore the military did not have the right to um, alter the land, um, um, the, alter the land holding arrangements. So, of course, what's you know, interesting about the AMP is you point out that you know, a lot of resistance against land grabbing today is either drawing on a rights-based discourse or an indigeneity discourse, right? And you say that, in fact, in the case of the AMP, sharecroppers were staking a moral right to livelihood and these patches of land, right? By referencing customary law, by referencing this long history of canal irrigation in the Punjab, so you see these modes of resistance, right? This creation of a moral community as generating a very unique kind of political subjectivity vis-a-vis the post-colonial Pakistani nation state. Correct. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that really um, caught a lot of urban activists and others who were close observers of Pakistan was the kind of, as I use the word um, kind of carefully, for for them, it was something unexpected, um, partly because of how the kind of political um, um, environment in Pakistan is that this region is often considered to be a kind of folkloric heartland of Pakistani nationalism, where um, there's a closer identification with the state. So the, the kind of, um, a lot of the response to the mobilization by AMP was that there is a certain kind of rise in a kind of critical political consciousness, maybe. Or there is a result of a certain kind of commercialization of agriculture. Or there was um, various different kinds of responses explaining this kind of phenomena of of a protest movement right in the heart of Punjab. And um, and when I started initially just kind of going in kind of preliminary interviews and conversation with members of AMP, many um, tenant leaders themselves would repeat that kind of discourse about growing awareness or kind of increase in political consciousness. And it may, and you know, um, and it was kind of an echo effect as well of this idea of a kind of developmental discourse uh, that was uh, kind of shown as also the rise of like you know commercial culture in the villages and other things. But as I spent more and more time, I realized uh, that actually there has been a kind of a long kind of critical understanding that the military itself might not have rights to this land, right? And there has been a history of political mobilization and resistance in these villages. Um, You know, maybe it was not around making a claim on the land, but it was about fairness and how sharecropping was assessed, how crops were weighed. 
how transparent that process was. Um, people kind of had special kind of memory about the 1965 elections, you know, or the 1970s under Bhutto and how people's attitudes towards the farm administration changed. And there were kind of different discrete moments of resistance throughout the kind of 20th century, you know. So to me, that was a very interesting way in which how a certain kind of mobilization, there's a kind of internally, there's a kind of longer memory about uh, this struggle for greater amount of, you know, claims on the land that people have been cultivating for 100 years. Yet at the same time, um, the presentation in a kind of broader journalistic way was that this thing really emerges out of nowhere in the year 2000, I guess, as a first kind of major form of resistance to uh, General Musharraf's government. So, you know, infrastructure is currently a buzzword in our discipline. And we, in fact, met on a panel on agrarian infrastructures, right? So your interest in canal irrigation during the British colonial period, of course, draws on a far older canon in anthropology, right? That of gift exchange. So I'm just curious, how did rural infrastructure, you know, the landscape as an infrastructural one, how did it emerge as such a key pivot in your analysis of land rights? I mean, how were you running into this question of canals and what that meant in terms of peasants' relationships with the state? How did it really all come together for you? Yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, no, it really an, emerged as a kind of a very important question um, unexpectedly because I wasn't aware of the kind of scale of the kind of environmental transformation of this region, of the Indus Plains, or the very idea of what is our kind of mental image of the Punjab as this kind of... Like, um, as this kind of, at least in central Punjab, as this kind of very planned and gridded um, region of, of absolute um, kind of commercial agriculture and how recent that was and how so much of this region was actually a much more um, um, kind of a pastoral or mobile landscape at, as recently as 1870s, 1860s. So the very uh, way in which this massive irrigation project came together was, and its large-scale impacts, uh, was something that I felt like had to be addressed in terms of like the politics of contemporary Pakistan and kind of very making of institutional and regional identities. Uh, and there has been some kind of work on by economic historians, most notably um, Imran Ali and you know David Gil Martin's great work on irrigation. But I felt like in terms of the politics of a kind of a more ethnographic engagement with that, and for me, infrastructure also helps us rethink kind of some of the questions in anthropology, which were more associated with kind of British or kind of um, um, st structuralist or functionalist understandings of how to cr think about solidarity and kind of this idea of what holds communities together. And often there was a kind of recourse towards the ideas of custom or even this notion of the gift, which is something almost mystical. But I thought that um, one of the exciting things about the literature and infrastructure studies was the very way in which uh, technology and um, kind of material culture, materiality of, of roads, but also records of, of, of ink, of, of record keeping, how that also allows for the possibility of a certain kind of, if not um, solidarity, then a kind of networked sociality, right? And a lot of the things that was really exciting to me in terms of thinking about the older 
literature on gift and was this also this kind of surprise constantly that there is this idea in theories of kind of infrastructural development, at least by engineers, of this kind of modernization project and of the disenchantment that will come when these projects come to their full fruition. And what you see over and over again, and this is also what's exciting about it, is you see how these projects get really embedded in by by different forces and different actors to make local claims, right? So, um, so how um, kind of infra- infrastructure becomes re-embedded in different sets of imaginaries, um, and a lot of the literature I suggest in about the Punjab, for instance, about kind of biradri, um, or about this ideas of um, kind of even I would venture to so far as to say as something like caste, has to really start thinking about the questions of property and infrastructure much more seriously in terms of how those things kind of come together um, in state-making and also formations of subjectivity. So, you know, taking this uh, to a slightly different direction, I did want to ask you to extrapolate a little bit for our listeners about, you know, your very eclectic theorizing of subalternity, right? You kind of move away or move past uh, from the subaltern studies school of thought and instead, you know, you engage anew with Gramsci's Southern Question, you engage with Eric Wolf. Will you talk a little bit about, you know, how these pieces come together for you in your analysis of the AMP? Um, Thank you for that. Um, I think one of the things that really uh, guided me into and excited me to kind of take on this project was a lot of the debates that came out of subaltern studies literature, you know, particularly about representation, about other modes of history, um, and about not taking the kind of national narrative as a whole um, in terms of how to understand like local resource-based struggles. So that was very central to me. But I also noticed that... um, within the kind of formulations and there's such a kind of a broad and rich um, 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 kind of, you know, uh, like I don't know if one can even talk about subaltern studies as one thing anymore uh, or for a long time, but there is this kind of certain patterns of recreation center periphery relationships. Um, And one of the things that um, really struck me in terms of just the kind of question of infrastructure we were talking about about how long the engagement of the kind of very rural spaces um, has been with kind of this idea of global, not just in terms of trade, but like the transformation of landscapes um, and how um, in order to like, um, in order to, uh, I found some of the work of earlier on Gramsci, which was emphasizing that on relationality more so than um, kind of thinking through these notions of consciousness or taking the idea of the state um, at its as a more of a given that has happened in terms of how the state and its state administration is seen as so central in the formation of its regulation of the margins. Um, and um, so I, fo- I felt like one of the ways in which the proliferation of how regional kind of engagements with capitalism or kind of modern institutions or infrastructure, the different types of relationships that emerge. Um, I found some of the earlier classical work, um, uh, and, and you see that happening in a lot of new emerging literature, which is critical of some of the elements or some of the aspects of subaltern studies, like I'm thinking of Tariq Omar Ali's work on Jute in Bangladesh, right? I'm thinking, or East Bengal, um, or the role of how to think about capital or how to think about regional histories 
um, that um, that are um, that get left out within the model of subaltern studies, which is so engaged with the idea of the nation or national elite. You know, speaking of representations, I think social movements present particularly unique challenges in that regard, right? To even turn it into this ethnographic object with a beginning and an end, with boundaries, it is a political act. And you write at length about this dilemma between critique and solidarity. So how did your approach so what was your approach initially, right, going into the field? And how did it evolve over the course of your research? Because, I mean, the AMP itself sort of goes through these dramatic crests and troughs in its own political trajectory. So how did, you know, you manage expectations from your interlocutors in terms of representing what was going on in the ground one way and your own commitment to critique in your own writing? One of the most difficult things is, you know, and this goes back to um, especially the kind of the method of anthropology also or ethnography is that often we work with abstractions and we work with um, you know ideas, but when you are actually very much you know immersed in a situation, you do realize the kind of contingencies that are there and how. So AMP is still very much present in a very different form, like it was when I first started uh, doing my field work. So as I was mentioning earlier. I was following from a very long, from dist- great distance, the news about a kind of a peasant movement that had put the entire Pakistani military on the back foot. And for me, that was an incredible story. And I wanted to find out more. Um, but by the time I had gone through the whole process of, you know, um, applying for grants and going, starting my field work, um, and when I got to have the privilege of being there and um, in the in the villages. Um, they, there was a stalemate. Um, the military had backed away, and they were not no, no longer trying to forcibly enforce cash contracts. And tenants were holding on to the land and cultivating it without paying any rent in kind. And so the everyday life, uh, there was kind of slogans and symbols, but the, the sense of the movement was no longer there, particularly, right, outside of us. Um, and rightfully so. Why would people spend all their time, you know, they are peasant farmers after all. But, um, but there was also this kind of weariness about who are the kind of hopes and aspirations of the movement of greater amounts of um, kind of access uh, or guarantees for roti, kapra, makan, food, shelter, and like housing, you know, that's one of the, uh, is that going to be something that going to be materializing for everyone? Um, so, uh, so in that sense, at that particular moment, I was really interested in talking to people about these questions, but for, you know, for everyday folks, the movement, had achieved something already and it was not part of their everyday life. It was in moments where the state comes back that the movement suddenly comes back together, right? And a lot of the divisions that emerge in those moments where um, there's a lot of, um, so there's one aspect of it, of how the movement itself becomes more active and where things just kind of are not there. Uh, Partly it's also, who speaks for the movement, right? This is the kind of classical question, right? Like, do you talk to the leadership? Do you talk to every... Uh, and there's pe- pe- movement leaders who are at the in um, at the movement level, Punjab-wide. Then there's leadership within each village. And then there's ordinary people who are sacrificing a lot in engaging with the movement, but are not particularly seen as leaders. So there's different levels of imagining um, what the movement is and where it is at a particular moment in time. So that is also a really interesting question uh, vis-a-vis social movements in terms of how to 
think about um, representation, particularly. Um, but um, um, and so there were moments where I was really asking myself about if I uh, am, let's say, airing too much of dirty laundry, particularly, right? If there, but the, uh, or if there is a lot of kind of what what is my solidarity to? Who am I? Um, you know, um, um, and so that there's a lot of like self-reflection that goes on in terms of like how uh, to think about social movement as in a kind of a, in an ethnographic way. Do you have plans to share the book as it is with the movement back home or, you know, select leadership? I mean, do they know about Yes. Uh, so this summer I had gone back and I spoke especially with the folks who um, I had spent the most time with and I gave a few small presentations. And I, I'm hoping to at least translate a few more snippets, um, excerpts from the book, if not the entire book. Um, and, you know, this is a kind of process that I, it's a kind of a slower process for me, but I am trying to find more and more ways of doing that the most important thing to know right now is that, you know, as I describe in the book as well, that, you know, it's a very different moment for the movement at, at this time uh, because the state of repression um, against any kind of political dissent in Pakistan, like much of the world, but especially in Pakistan right now, has increased exponentially. Um, so a lot of the leadership of the movement that had actually enjoyed quite a a lot of influence during the time when I was doing field work at that particular moment, they were given a lot more. They had been, some of them were even running for provincial, um, you know, um, assembly office and national assembly uh, parliament um, are now locked up in jail, uh, partly because uh, their space for dissent uh, has closed radically in Pakistan after the passage of, um, counterterrorism new laws that have basically criminalized all kinds of dissent um, against the state. Yeah, I mean, this you know brings me perfectly to my next question. So that was actually one of the most interesting parts of the book for me to, on one hand, see Pakistan's implication in the global war on terror but also what that meant domestically in terms of the state's relationship with local democratic mass social movements, right? And there's often this um, directly proportional relationship between rising militarization and then repression of anything domestically that is seen as dissent, as uh, contradicting the party in power and so on. So, you know, just thinking out aloud, what did that also mean for you, right? Uh, you know, keeping ahead of this constantly shifting political terrain inside Pakistan as well as in terms of Pakistan's role internationally, right? Uh, the ripple effects, um, both methodologically, of course, some of which you alluded to right now, but also conceptually, right? And here I'm thinking about your coda in the book where you evoke Benjamin in trying to understand this dialectical relationship between law and violence. Um, and I found it particularly interesting given your... Um, anchor in this milieu that's you know authoritarian but domestically has kept alive this incredible movement that you know is mass based it's you know democratic uh huge rural base so yeah just no i think one of the things that i saw during the long course of you know, my research and doing field work. Um, it, it's, the, it's a depressing fact, but the, the kind of militarization that really 
um, is expands expanding after 9/11. It's always been a militarized culture in Pakistan because of the role of the military in a very distinct way. But the post kind of global war and terror, um, the way in which um, check posts and checkpoints and everyday forms of surveillance, how they have traversed and expanded um, in regions that they were not seen as being normal, for instance, central Punjab. Right? Um, so one of the interesting things was that the at the very beginning of the movement in the year 2000, 2001, when there was this kind of very militant uh, or kind of um, um, kind of stance by AMP. You know, they had slogans like "ownership of debt or death." You know, it's very kind of militant, uh, um, um, kind of stand of resistance against cash-based contract farming, right? To maintain access to land. Um, one of the things that the state was uh, uh, unable to do was to kind of place the tenant farmers in any kind of uh, uh, slot in which they could be seen as as anti-state. This is what General Musharraf's main struggle was: was he was unable to portray them as some kind of religious fanatics or terrorists or ethnic nationalists in a way that would afford or allow for a certain regime of repression. To but by the time we get to two thousand and eight, two thousand and twelve you have a very different Pakistan where the kind of logic of, uh, of, of counterterrorism has been kind of generalized where there is this kind of, has for very many different reasons. I mean, there is obviously the expansion of terrorist attacks all over Pakistan, which have nothing to do with AMP, but now the state is using fear and also is able to kind of use that to suppress um, anyone who's demanding land rights, whether they're tenant sharecroppers, but these laws have been used against people who are living in, you know, um, um, peri-urban towns around Karachi, uh, where they're resisting large-scale land developers. You know, they could be portrayed as some kind of terrorists and are actually sent to prison without uh, kind of any kind of judicial process in terms under the emergency laws that have been enacted uh, since 2012 at the very least. So that has been one of the larger largest shifts. Uh, but despite that, there is still is a kind of consistent level of um, resistance in a kind of a, not in a kind of, mass scale fashion, but there is still is annual um, kind of uh, commemoration of martyrs of the movement that happens in a, maybe a smaller scale. But, um, but the movement is still can emerge, but it's, it's, uh, it, it has to do with the kind of climate of repression in Pakistan right now, which ha- does not allow for the kind of mass scale mob- mobilization because the way the state is able to justify repression in a particular moment right now in Pakistan. So that was one of the most uh, difficult things to think about or write about, and especially uh, also a major challenge in in terms of what to share, in terms of who, how to, um, I tried to be very careful of not, um, you know, in in the course of doing my field work of uh, carrying any kind of, um, records or I mean the only people uh, who are quoted are obviously public um, figures of the movement right uh, so in terms of ethnography I really was not able to really do justice to a lot of the information or a lot of the conversation I had with individuals in my fear of making them too identifiable so just you know as we start winding down I learned a lot about the different ethno-nationalist identifications of the different regions within Pakistan, and particularly, you know, the Khol's identification of Punjab uh, with the nationalist status quo. 
So I was curious, did the past you know, almost two decades of AMP mobilization, has that at all chipped away at, you know, some of Punjab's image of um, the part, the heartland, right, that uh, supports um, the status quo in Islamabad that, you know, stands for not being errant, um, I think there, I think there, there's a series of different factors that kind of, uh, and reasons why there is, there's definitely the experience of, and there's a certain story of infrastructural development and this kind of intimate engagement between the state and the population in this region, the history of the military. Then there's the trauma of partition, in, you know, which is also something very. Um, something that is of another scale when it comes to Punjab, um, especially many of the people who live in these farms are themselves from Eastern, what is now Indian Punjab. So there are many kind of factors that kind of created the kind of structure of feeling, if you will, of identification of the national narrative. But one of the things that happens with the rise of AMP was um, a lot of those ideas of, let's say, that for some families, the threat of dispossession brought memories of displacement around the partition. Or the use of the military forces against peasants uh, were equated with Indian military's actions in Kashmir. Or, or at least what's on PTV every night, right? That uh, the tenants were d- discussing how they are being treated in the same way you know so there is a way in which there was um i would venture to say a larger effect of the amp which was in many ways the beginnings of the downfall of the general musharraf's government right Uh, because this was the first kind of major source of resistance before the lawyers movement which started creating this identity that the state had turned against the nation or the state had turned against. So there is this kind of, um, it's not an ethnic nationalist struggle in a sense, but there is this idea of the nation, um, which I think there is a kind of close identification in Punjab and vis-a-vis the state, which is seen very much along the lines of the military and the bureaucracy and not necessarily as um, you know, um, so I think there is a certain kind of um, that link has been strained, if not for many people called into question between nation and state. So, Mubashi, thank you for you know that discussion of your book. But I have to you know also ask, what are you working on? these days so what's the next project what's already kind of in the pipeline for you um well one of the things is i'm uh this summer and i'm starting to trying to like do two set you know after doing such a large project i'm trying to explore and kind of follow different interests and one of the things that i want to continue doing is keep working on pakistan and kind of rethink the land question in different ways and um so during the summer, I was actually doing field work in um, a wholesale market, Sabzi Mandi of Karachi, and looking at the kind of ways in which um, the food distribution networks and the different brokers, and especially the labor in the market, works across the lines of ethnic and sectarian difference, and and like looking at how um, the entire commodity chain of garlic, for example, goes from Balochistan to a kind of informal settlement in parts of Karachi and looking at what that entails. Um, so um, so there's that one project that I've been kind of excited about in terms of linking and kind of rethinking Karachi and uh, find a different way to talk about ethnic politics and Karachi um, rather than taking it as a given, but looking at it through the um, shared kind of um, element of food, basically food distribution and food kind of uh, kind of 
wholesale markets. Uh, so that's one element. And But I also have another project that's been kind of a, so far a kind of historical and kind of cultural studies project in some ways, which has been looking at the kind of reflecting back on my own experiences growing up in the States, which is looking at the kind of history of um, um, kind of Islam in America and looking at, um, um, so I have been working on projects uh, which have to do with mapping, you know, um, uh, the experience of uh, um, kind of across um, African-American and kind of Asian or Pakistani and Indian and Arab um, um, immigrant Muslim communities in that sense. So that is something that I've been doing uh, more kind of informally for a long time. I haven't really published anything on it, but that's something that I've been kind of carrying on um, and looking at kind of, um, so that's, and there's, I have another project on kind of looking at the environmental history of uh, the place where I do my work, you know, where I work. Where, where I work professionally is Georgetown University. So I've been kind of looking at the his, kind of what in in Georgetown's own telling of its own history and reckoning with its past of especially um, its initiative to kind of come to terms with its own history of slavery, how that narrative is being framed and what other stories might be kind of silenced in terms of the larger history of indigenous and um communities and also tobacco trade. So so here I've sped a lot of different things because I'm excited about having small projects that kind of keep me fulfilled and my curiosity about these different set of questions. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us and our listeners. And we here at New Books Network wish you all the best for all these super interesting new projects. And we hope we see all of them out in the world very soon. So all the best. And thank you so much. Thank you, Madhuri, for this great opportunity. Thank you.